Hey, you're listening to Tech Policy Grind, a podcast from the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. My name is Emery Rohn, and today it's another foray into privacy, or more specifically, the International Association of Privacy Professionals. This time with Angelique Carson, editor of the Privacy Advisor and host of the excellent and far more popular Privacy Advisor podcast over at the IAPP. If you're not already subscribed to her show, you'll definitely want to check it out. And if you're joining us from the Privacy Advisor, welcome. On our show, we also dive into the legal weedsy, often but not exclusively privacy issues at the forefront of tech policy, with a focus on the early career professionals paving the way in the field. Today with Joe Jerome, we talk about the latest trends in privacy, Angelique's near decade with the IAPP, and work on the Privacy Advisor, and trade stories of podcasting ups, downs, and pro tips. If you enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed making it, let us know at Tech Policy Grind on Twitter, and maybe tell a friend. And most importantly, if you're a student interested in or an early career professional already working in tech policy, and you haven't applied for the next class of fellows at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, what are you waiting for? Run, don't walk to your nearest internet device, it's actually probably in your hand or nearby, and then immediately go to ilpfoundry.us slash join. We're accepting applications now until April 30th, and we want to see yours. I've had an awesome time with the Foundry and have met some amazing colleagues. Highly recommend 10 out of 10. Okay, the preliminaries are out of the way. Let's get right into it. I'll see you in about 35 minutes, but until then, enjoy this chat with the Privacy Advisor's very own Angelique Carson. Awesome. All right, so we've, we've got Angelique here, editor of the Privacy Advisor for the International Association of Privacy Professionals. Um, so she also hosts the Privacy Advisor podcast, so I don't know if this is necessarily going to count as a crossover event, um, but it is nice to finally put someone on the spot and have her uh, join something I'm running for a change. Um, <laughs> but Angelique, as the, as the Privacy Advisor, my longstanding question to you is, like, what are you advising people about? Okay. Well, first of all, I am not the privacy advisor. I am very much not the privacy advisor, but we put out the privacy advisor, which is, you know, it comprises stories written by some of our members on the pressing sort of legal issues, mostly that they're seeing. Um, and some of the stories are written by myself or other writers at the IPP and focus on, you know, some newsy events, like if, you know, you know the GDPR gets passed or um, CCPA gets passed, or there's some type of like, you know, legal entanglement people can't seem to get past to, to pass some law in the U.S. or abroad. That's the type of stuff that we tackle. So um, what's going on right now? I mean, so it looks like there's been a little bit of progress on e-privacy or at least things are moving a little bit. This is only according to tweets I've been seeing from Eduardo Esteron. <laughs> I'm always interested in how much of like staying on top of privacy news or like even writing about privacy news involves like a, a careful curated Twitter feed. I mean, I, so I hated Twitter for a long time. I, I hated like trying to read like the like hashtags and the like at sign messed me up. I was really tech illiterate for a while, but for me, it's been more about growing a profile professionally and at the same time trying to elicit some interest um, from people who are hopefully following me about the news stories that I'm crafting and to kind of like see me as a legitimate source of news that they need to help them do their jobs better. So I definitely, and I've seen my following, Joe and I joke, we've been uh, racing for followers. Uh, he was beating me for a really long time, but I've surpassed him. I think I'm like a good 80 followers or so ahead of him right now, which I'm very <laughs> proud of. It took years. 
Um, but you I mean, now I've got to pull this up and figure this out exactly. I mean, yeah, <laughs> thanks. Do. That's that wasn't the purpose of the, of this podcast. We don't, need to oh. com- we don't need to be comparing Twitter followers. Oh, I think we should. I oh, think I think we, we should. should, in fact, because Joe, you're sitting at one thousand eight hundred and thirty compared to Angelique's one thousand nine hundred and four followers. How, how, and we're how, just going to ignore how mine. How are you doing, Emery? Even... How are you doing? Oh, it's it's. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm still sub a thousand. I think I'm around 600 or so. I think you should pull up your number. Uh, 596. Uh, hey. 600 threshold. You got to start somewhere. Well, listeners, you could, uh, you know, anyone listening to this that isn't following me already, at Emery Roan, at Jojo Roan, <laughs> and... <laughs> so, so, Angela, you're trying to build your brand on Twitter, but also sort of understand the dialogue. What, I mean, what are the, the mega trends that you're seeing in privacy? Uh, well, first of all, let's just remember to throw my handle in at Privacy Pen. So, y'all, if you're going to follow Emery and Joe, please be sure to follow <laughs> me as well. Shameless plug. Um, I mean, I think right now the biggest thing, and this probably sounds super obvious if you're watching the, you know, the industry, but you know, we're just seeing this rapid move toward legislation. I think, uh, you know, ever since GDPR came down, we started looking at ourselves in the U.S. and thinking, how are we going to stay on par? How are we going to trade data? Um, Etc. And then obviously when uh, CCPA, are we? Can we use acronyms here? Or should I? Oh, absolutely. Them up? Yeah, we we've talked about the CCPA enough that if folks don't understand the acronym, um, we've got like three okay. or four episodes to listen to on it. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. Um, so yeah, I think like ever since for me as a journalist working in DC, ever since CCPA happened, my world kind of changed a little bit. Like it seemed like people got freaked out, and there was this rapid acceleration of more than just talk and like. Yes, we're still just talking, but we're talking with a with a look toward action. And we're seeing, obviously, states like Washington and a number, I think there's something like close to 100 state proposals right now on privacy bills. Um, so things have just gotten really, really busy and super interesting to me. Actually, Joe and I were talking the other day about the fact that it took me a really long time to like living in D.C. because it was just so different from where I come from in the Northeast. Um, but now it's an exciting time to work in privacy because... There's all these hearings and the hearings have really shifted where the dialogue seems more meaningful. The senators and the House representatives seem more educated than they have been in the past. Like they seem like they're coming to the hearings, having done some homework, having their staffers have done some research and brief them. They're obviously taking meetings with stakeholders. So it just feels like we're finally getting serious about something and, uh, you know, specifically about a federal baseline bill so that we're not dealing with, you know, all these individual state bills, which depending on which side you sit on this <laughs> is a good or a bad thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, okay, I think that's really the both biggest... sides represented on this show, in fact, yeah. <laughs> Actually, on the federal side, at least. Yeah, uh, I'm looking at uh, the spreadsheet on my on my window right now of 30 different California privacy bills that we're analyzing. So, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that's insane. I don't think, you know. I don't think anyone has a good number, right? I, I, it also depends on how you're defining privacy. Almost all sorts of laws can sort of touch on data flows and data management. Um, yeah, very true. Sort of unmanageable at this point. Uh, so, Angelique, I've always, like, also, I'm sort of curious, how much do you get to craft what you're reporting on? So clearly you're, you're following these trends. You've got people who want to figure out how they're supposed to comply with CCPA, pick your acronym. Um, but, you know, I can't imagine you, like writing about the CCPA ad nauseum. So how do you get to pick what you write about? Um, well, I mean, the cool thing about being where I'm at now in my career is that I've been doing this for nine years now, I think. Yeah, nine years, going on 10. Um, Congrats. Which, you say that to anyone in DC and they're like, what? Like, you know, people tend to job hop a lot more than I have. But 
Um, I'm starting to see some dividends from that. I think in that, for one thing, I have some autonomy in terms of dictating my editorial calendar. Um, but in another way, there's a lot of pressure there because there is so much happening and it's hard for me to always know as someone who's not practicing privacy, what is the most interesting and relevant story to our readers? Um, we have a, an advisory board that I lean on a little bit, bit uh, for that. And then also, you know, just having friends like Joe and some of the other um, kind of lawyery advocacy think tanky friends that I have around town who can kind of tell me what they're really focused and concerned on. Um, no shortage yeah, of those I'm, in DC. Yeah. I mean, there's no shortage of happy hours to go, you know, gossip over the latest, <laughs> you know, I hate, you know, X group for introducing this ledge or whatever. Um, or, you know, this whole <laughs> way, way to be positive there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, people are, people are passionate in DC. So it's, it's, people aren't usually lukewarm. It's, they stand very firm on, one side or the other in general. Um, but yeah, it does get a little bit frustrating to like write the same stories over and over. Um, not that we're, but not that we're writing the same things over and over, but there are, you know, like w leading up to something getting past. There's so like, I've probably written, I don't know, at least a dozen stories in, you know, probably the last six months on a federal bill itself. And so you got to try and find the nuance of the hearing. Like for example, the last hearing that we had, in the Senate, they were really focused on location tracking, um, and they really focused on that in a way that I hadn't seen them focus on it before so heavily. So I think that's what you got to try and do to keep your news relevant and interesting and keep pushing the, you know, the narrative forward. Do you feel like this has sort of gone on in circles? So, I mean, you've actually been in privacy land longer than I have, um, but, you know, uh, Senator Franken was big on geolocation does a half dozen years ago, um, the Obama administration was pushing for a, a privacy bill. Um, like, do you do you feel like you're you've gone over these stories before? Um, and you know, as someone who sort of has been doing this for a long time, like like how did you start off? Like, what was the first? Do you remember what the trend was uh, in 2010? Oh my God! Well, the thing is, is it took me so long to understand and I'm still learning, uh, data protection and data privacy. Joe knows, like, every time I go on a panel, when I'm with practitioners, I get a little nervous because, like, I'm kind of looking at it from, you know, outside the window, like, looking at the people inside who are actually operationalizing it. And so I feel like I'm coming at it from a different perspective. And, yes, I talk to a lot of people and become a subject matter expert as quickly as I can so that I can write with some authority. But um, I think it's it's harder to get a grasp of the issues when you're not practicing it. But I remember in 2010 when I started, um, and I was very dumb. I was just I was 25. <laughs> I was 25, and I was coming from writing just mainstream like community journalism. And um, I remember we were just writing about breaches all the time, like little breaches though. Like it was like it was. I remember we were we call it blurbing. I don't know if that's something other people call things, but we we were writing about like you know. <clears throat> pharmacies that had taken like cardboard boxes filled with sensitive, you know, prescription papers and left it, you know, to be picked up by their garbage removal. And they were found blowing. I remember the phrase blowing in the wind. And, uh, like, <laughs> and I'm going to have to jump in here with a little bit of advocacy here, because the fact that paper records are not included in the definition of personal information on almost any data breach notification statutes, it's a crime. And you can check out our reporting on that at uh, privacyrights.org. I knew you were going to plug that report. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, that's so, so first it was just little breaches and yeah, I feel like there are people who have been focused on geolocation before and I'm Joe, you could write that book well before I could, but 
we weren't it I used to just completely like scoff at any mention of a federal bill because I mean first of all it's Congress and they don't pass anything <laughs> and and it just like it was like Two and now they seem like they're really successful. You know, I think they turned over a new leaf. And if there ever was a time to be confident that we're going to see federal privacy legislation, it's with this administration and this Congress in particular. Emory, Emory you don't sound serious, but you are you are speaking my talking points right there. <laughs> Wait, are you being sarcastic or serious? Yes. <laughs> oh, okay, that's what I thought. But, um, yeah, no, I know. Joe says, in everyone's, you know, when I ask people, is it going to happen? When's it going to happen? Everyone says, yes, it will, but it's not going to happen for three years. Is what I'm. It <laughs> sounds like you could have said that every day for the past, I don't know, ten years. Right. Exactly. Well, that. So that's the thing. Is like I wasn't really folk. I wasn't really writing those stories. Like we were. We would mention it in the Daily Dashboard, which is our our newsletter. We would, you know, say, "Oh, the Washington Post reports." You know, Franken wants to know, like, and he's serious, but hey, like, in terms can of I make a plug into- for the Daily Dashboard, actually, you should probably be mm-hmm. plugging all of the IEPP stuff because, like, to the extent people are listening to this and haven't signed up for IEPP materials. Um, a lot of them are free and a pretty good value. So Actually, I, 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 I've been trying to figure out a good way to shoehorn in a, uh, a shift in the conversation because I do think that I'd, I'd, we have just sort of skimmed over the uh, International Association of Privacy Professionals. Really rolls off are, the tongue there. Yeah, the IAPP, uh, of which you are uh, certified as a uh, CIPUS member. I, I think that it's probably time to talk a little bit about the organization, yeah, and um, especially in context of sort of becoming a subject matter expert. Yeah, so um, so the organization is sort of like this, it's a cool story, really. I, our CEO, Trevor Hughes, was working as a lawyer, and he was starting to see these cases come across his desk um, that dealt with data breaches and sort of privacy and data protection issues. And he sort of saw the writing on the wall that there was going to need to be someone responsible for data stewardship at companies in a new way. And so... Um, but we have just grown, we've seen this like absolutely exponential growth, um, especially in Europe, given the GDPR, we've got almost 50,000 members globally right now. Um, and I remember us, do you know what member number you are? <laughs> I have no idea, I, but I can tell you that I was, I was like the 30th something higher at the IEPP and now we've got like 200 people. Wow. So that was nine years ago. So, I mean, we used to work in this little, it's the newbies are tired of us telling this romantic story, but we used to literally work on this creaky old uh, farmhouse in York, Maine, like these beautiful, big, wide, like wood floorboards. Like we used to work in bedrooms hmm. together. It was, it was really a small operation. And like, you knew everyone's like kids names, you know, not, not just their names, but their kids names. It was like very much a little family. And now we've had to grow as a company and it's take, you know, there's some growing pains that go along with that. We're definitely like, we have this entrepreneurial spirit and we're not for profit, but um, we're growing into something that's really big. Um, so it's been interesting. What are to the kind different of... training? What are the different certifications that they offer? I, I am full disclosure. I'm a CIP E, which is certified in European privacy. Joe, are you uh, a member of the IAPP or certified in any? Uh, ob- obviously, I'm a CIP US. Obviously, of course. Yeah. So we've got um, the CIPP US. We've got Europe. We've got Asia. We've got Canada. Um, and we used to have... I think of a SIPM, right? Like a Yeah, there's man- a management, management one. Yeah, so that's sort of the less of the what and more of the how, like the sort of practical um, application of privacy. Um, we've got a CIPPT, um, and we used to have a CIPPG, which was for government folks, but we did away with that. That's heartbreaking for our listeners who are fans of the Privacy Act. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, we've got all sorts of uh, a grab bag of fun for people who want to get certified. And I, full disclosure, I studied the best that I could. We've changed the testing process significantly since I got my CIPP. Joe, never call it a sip. It's like a, a sin oh, at the IBP. Oh, oh no. really? Okay. I've only ever referred to it as a sip. So oh, no. <laughs> excuse me. Sorry. Well, good to know. No problem. Between <laughs> like sip and IAP are like the two things that like thou shalt not say. Um, so yeah, when, when, I, when I got mine, uh, which is the US one, I, it used to be in two modules. You would take what was called a foundation and then you'd take the certification test. So I try. I studied my best. I but which, which is like you know we have an incentive at the IBP. If you pass the test, you get a certain financial incentive. So I was like, oh, I'll, I'll do this. So I studied a a little bit. Probably should have studied a little more. And I passed my foundation. <laughs> and I failed my CIPP. So I had to go back and take the second part again. And uh, but you know that's the whole thing is like I've never practiced before. So it's kind of like you like you have none of that like on the job like experience. But um, yeah, it was interesting, and I'm I'm glad to be called a uh, a CIPP. We're we're a big old family now. Do you have a you have a designation? You said Emery. Yeah, I'm CIPPE. Okay, trying nice. to get ready for uh, a, a move over to the EU eventually. Nice, nice, very cool, very cool. So I guess one thing I've I've admired about you, and one of the reasons I dragged you on or made you a guest on this show is you've got your own podcast, and you've managed to keep this podcast going for a couple of years now. Uh, I know you always are saying it's part of my job, but I still think it's pretty tough work. So what was the genius behind creating a privacy advisor podcast? So I have to say that all props go to my former boss who since left the company. But um, my boss, Sam Feifel, is pretty media savvy and he's like very avid podcast listener. He likes to listen to like sports podcasts on his way to work. He used to commute for like an hour and a half each way. So he like became really familiar with podcasting as a medium. And he's like, we really should be launching. We should be launching one. And I really didn't want to do it because I didn't, I didn't listen to podcasts myself. Now I do. I love them, but I didn't listen at the time. So this was probably three or four years. I can't, wow. three or four years. I, since I, I literally cannot imagine trying to start a podcast if you don't listen to podcasts. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I, and even when I launched it, I still, I don't think I, I don't even know if I'd listen to one when I launched it. Um, but you know, so it was on my, Okay, you but you listen to the you actually listen to yourself, right? Uh, you mean after the fact? Do I listen? Yeah. No, no, I, I, I will admit that I have listened to. We got a lot of good feedback on the one that Joe and I did most recently. We did two in a row, and people really responded to it. So I listened to that to kind of try and embed in my head what's working about that one. But in general, I never want to hear myself. Like I probably won't yeah, listen yeah. to this one. Well, all right. I mean, just to pull back the curtain here, listeners, because I mean, Angelique and I are both the ones that edit our shows. And, right. you, you know, when you edit a podcast and you listen to like that is the <laughs> there is no more like self-reflective act than having to listen oh. to every single um and uh and oh. like clearing throat and really dumb thing that you say. Um, so I listen very... to our shows like three or four times while we're editing it and then never again. It is a very humbling experience to listen to yourself interview someone or, or try and chat intelligently, but in a casual way. Yeah. And it's also hard because a lot of the time, like, this is fun because I know I've met you, Emery, and I know Joe very well. But when you're talking to someone that you don't have a relationship with at all and you have no idea, especially if you're not face-to-face, -face, it's really hard to get that, like, chemistry going and get that nice back and forth. Um, you can't look at their facial expressions and understand, you know, when you're asking a question, if you're headed in the right direction or you're totally off base. 
Um, so that can be really hard. But I think in terms of the consistency of it that you were asking about, Joe, it's, I mean, for one thing, so Sam had put it on my goals for the year, which we go over right before I get my bonus or not to launch a <laughs> podcast. So that was pretty strong incentive. Um, but then other than that, you know, it started to be something that people really did respond to. The good thing about going through the IPP um, channel is that we have a lot, you know, I'm, we publish the podcast and daily dashboard and we have, that's a huge subscription list. And so it, it, it reaches a lot of people. And to my surprise, I mean, utter surprise, people started to like sort of latch onto it. And we were watching the listens like grow and grow. And it was getting like 1500 listens an episode and then 2000 and then 3000 an episode. And it was like, okay, like that's a decent audience for us to reach. And so yeah. then we were able to sell a, you know, now we have a sponsor that pays us to, um, to put on the podcast every, so that's the other thing is I'm responsible for the average to the advertisers. So, um, I have to, I have to keep up, um, <laughs> but it's been fun. It's a good it's problem a to have from, though, frankly. Right. But it's also, it's a way for me that it's really helped me understand privacy and data protection a lot better. You know, that direct one-to-one, um, conversation with someone who's, who's doing privacy on the ground, um, has really, I think, helped me. And also it's made me up my game because now that I know people are listening, I don't want to ask stupid questions. So it's made me have to do a little more homework and make sure that I'm asking things that are nuanced and interesting. So what's your process for putting together an episode? Like, aside from my superb recommendations, how do you go about finding guests? Well, for example, one complaint that I've had is that my podcast tends to be really US-centric, which is totally fair. Um, part of that is because I'm based in the U.S. and I, I get, interact with a lot of our U.S. peeps. So um, also there's a lot going on in the U.S. right now. So, um, yeah. but, but, so what I'm trying to do is really expand globally. So what I'm trying – so one thing that I learned is that I thought it was true that this whole like everyone has a story thing. And I think everyone does have a story, but everyone doesn't have an interesting story. So I was <laughs> – <laughs> I was, and you know, it's partly my fault as an interviewer, but I was trying to pick people and I thought, well, we'll just talk for an hour and something good will come out of it. And I was really having trouble in some episodes that you'll listen to. You know, if you listen to the entire catalog, there are some episodes that just don't get there. And it's like, I realized that I have to, like, I have to find a little bit of a news hook. I have to do a better job of that. So for example, um, in Brazil right now, they're about to update their privacy law and, and the update will also reconfigure a bit the way that the data protection authority in that country uh, functions and operates. So looking ahead to that, it's supposed to happen in April. So looking ahead to that, I went to our Latin American managing director, Rosa, and I said, hey, let's do a little, let's do a two-part podcast. The first part will be you giving us an overview of privacy in Latin America Second part is, can you introduce me to someone who speaks, you know, pretty solid English in Brazil and who's really up on this privacy stuff and will do like sort of an overview of what the changes in Brazil mean? So I really lean on people for recommendations because the other thing that's hard about podcasting is that it's not like doing an interview where you can, as a writer, you can take what they say and make it, you know, and sort of paraphrase for them and then just punctuate that with some quotes from them to make them, you know, sound a little better um, or at least more coherent. Like with a podcast, like, you, if you don't know them ahead of time, you're just throwing a dart, hoping it works. So what I've definitely started doing is I always do a pre-call before I record now mm. to figure out if this person's a good fit. Sometimes they're not. And I have to bail on it, which is awkward. How do you bail on something? Like, how do you get to the point where you have a pre-call and then you say, actually, you're just not that interesting. 
I'm still working on that, to be honest. It's really gentle. I usually, honestly, like I a little bit, and hopefully no one who I've done this to listens to this, but I sometimes, <laughs> I sometimes have to fib a little bit and be like, oh, our editorial calendar has changed. Let's talk again. Like in the future, I'll keep your number. Like, um, like I just recorded one actually with a couple of people and it just didn't work and it, it just wasn't coherent. It, there was no chemistry. So I said, I said to them, I think we should re-record. It's my fault. I didn't like facilitate this well enough. We had had a pre-call and I thought we'd be okay, but we just weren't. And they actually, I think are mad. They haven't responded to my email. Um, (laughs) So it is awkward. But like one thing I learned at this podcasting conference I went to in Anaheim was that if you care about your show, you have to be willing to like make those moves because like if your listeners start to trust you with content and then you deliver them something that's totally bad, Mm. they're mad and they could, you know, find another show to listen to in the future. And that's not what you want. Can we talk a little bit about your journey to the IAPP? Totally. Yeah. Because um, like, I, like you alluded to earlier, you're, uh, and when you got into privacy, you're sort of writing it, writing about privacy, not from a sort of lawyer or privacy professional perspective uh, at the outset, right? Well, so I always have, since I've been writing about privacy, I've been at the IVP and suppose, and I'm supposed to be writing to privacy lawyers. Um, and not, I shouldn't say that I'm supposed to be writing to privacy practitioners. That's a very important distinction. Um, but I was coming from, I, so I was the editor of my college newspaper. I did internships at all bunch of like, I did an internship at this like alternative news weekly in Portland, Maine, where I went to college and where I'm from. And I was working in community at a, I was working for a newspaper that my responsibility was, my beat was these three municipalities, um, the cities of Saco and Biddeford and the town of Old Orchard Beach in Southern Maine. So I was doing reporting that was like really easy to identify who my readers were. It was like, okay, I know that I should write about the school board budget meeting because the people reading my paper have kids in the schools, or I know I should write about the drunk, the bus driver who was drunk driving the kids, which happened. Um, because like, you know, again, people care about their children or whatever, um, town ordinances, things that would affect the budget, um, trash pickup, what have you. And it was fun. It was like really easy to like sort of connect with the readers. And I sort of understood what I was supposed to do. I got laid off from that job four months in because newspapers are dying and shrinking (laughs) and same thing happened to this newspaper. And my dad had actually told me like when I was going to go into journalism, he's like, that's a bad idea. Like the closer to the money you are, the more money you're going to make. And newspapers aren't where the money are. And I was like, you don't know my dreams, dad. And (laughs) now I'm like, that was so stupid. I totally should have listened to him because it's really hard to make money as a writer. Um, So anyway, I called Sam Feifel, who I just mentioned was my boss uh, most recently crying, who at that time was not working at the IPP, but was playing soccer with the CEO of the IPP, Trevor Hughes, and was Hmm. like, hold on, I know this guy and he's hiring. Um, He wants to start up like a, a news team at his organization. So What was hard, like I mentioned, was that when I got there, I was writing about privacy like I was writing it for consumers. So I like was right. I would pick out like parts of the news that I thought were relevant. And my editor at the time was like, no, like our people don't care about this. Um, So I had to like really shift my thinking and um, start to understand like what my job was, which was to help privacy people do their jobs better. But it's hard to do that if you don't know what their jobs are. Um, So, yeah, it took me a long time to figure that out. And going to conferences and the more contacts I made and the more coffees I have, um, you know, it's still a learning process for me, but um, the more contact you have with the people who are doing it, the better off you are. So 
that's sort of been part of the journey. All right, Angelique. So, I mean, you've had to sort of reshift your mindset to uh, like understand what privacy practitioners want. Um, but I guess, you know, your entire life is, is not privacy, as you often remind me. Um, so to <laughs> sort of bring this to the close, when you aren't busy trying to understand federal privacy legislation and all sorts of privacy acronyms, um, you know, what are you doing for fun? What are you reading? Anything interesting? Hey, I thought you weren't going to ask me the what are you reading question. <laughs> it was, it's an open to ask you whatever, for you to say whatever you want to work on. Oh, well now, but then it looks like I'm just like ignorant and don't read. And so I'm going to avoid that question. Um, no, I'll answer it like that. So cut that part. But um, <laughs> I think we should leave that part. I in. have no, all actually, the power. I here. don't care. You can leave that in. Um, I'm reading a totally like, it's like an easy beach read. Like sometimes I, I just read to fall asleep. And so I need something that I don't have to think about. So I'm reading this book called Everything I Never Told You. Um, I can't, I don't know how to pronounce the author's last, last name, so I'm not going to, but that's the name of the book. And um, for fun, I'm just like trying to, now that I have a, a bit of an affection for DC, I'm trying to explore. Um, I went for a walk through this neighborhood the other day with my friend called Mount Pleasant. That's like adjacent to my neighborhood of Columbia Heights. And we just like stopped in every random place we could find. And we found this like little tiny cinema. Joe, do you know this place? It's called like Sun Cinema on like- Oh yeah, it's good Yeah, times. it's like this little tiny cinema with like a popcorn machine and a bartender. And then just like, a random assortment of like chairs that now, they found outside. Not to give not to give away too much PII, but you know that's relatively close to where I think. Whoa, we live, cutting so. that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely yeah, don't want like anyone doxed on this show. Um, <laughs> oh no, I'm just. I, I was reading a doxing thread how many earlier. Years so. <laughs> to find a movie theater that's. Well, no, it looks so sketchy though. It looks block. like I thought it was a I thought it was like a porn like type of theater like for a long time because it looked so shady to me. Like there's no like, you know. There's no like marquee outside or like even a list. There's like a tiny like ten point font list of the movies they're playing tacked onto their wall. But anyway, my point is that I'm exploring uh, DC and all that it has to offer now that I'm sort of feeling more affectionate towards it. And um, yeah, that's how I'm like kind of spending my time and burning some calories at the same time. As one final wrap up question, uh, we like to ask our guests uh, what sort of advice they would have for maybe younger them or all the early career professionals trying to take their job in a few years. Uh, and so I, I know that um, like so many of well, so many of our guests have you know similar stories along the lines of you know um, I happened I was working with someone or I knew someone that could connect me to someone, um, and, and frequently the lesson there is to foster as many, you know, good connections with smart people as you can, because um, you never know when opportunities will avail themselves to you. But I, I'd love to hear if you have any other closing advice for any of our listeners. Yeah, I mean, I think that like, you know, it's hard not to be redundant, because I think it really is all about connections, but not so much in, in the way that you might think in terms of like, greasing palms. It's just that like, people are people are your greatest asset in terms of building your knowledge base. And I would add on to that, that I've really had to just sort of humble myself and and decide that even though I'm telling you guys not to put in things that make me sound stupid, like decide that in these one-on-one -on -one conversations where I'm not being recorded that I don't, I'm not afraid to sound stupid and I'm not afraid to say, I don't understand what you mean. I need you to back that down, like walk that back for me. Tell me that at an eighth grade level. Um, because, you know, there's sort of this like pride thing where we feel like, oh, I've been working, I've done, you know, X number of years in this field or like I went to college, I should know that. 
but like that's where I think we do a disservice to ourselves so I just think being sort of unafraid and unapologetic to ask what you don't know and ask people to slow down and explain it to you goes a really long way Wow, that's really great advice. Angelique, thank you so much for joining us today. I had a really great time talking. Thanks for having me. I'll be back anytime. This has been an episode of Tech Policy Grind, a podcast from the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. We're a collection of early career professionals paving the way in the tech policy world, and we really hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what you just heard, it would be a huge help and mean a lot to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. If you don't have iTunes, maybe just share the show with a friend. We want to thank Ali Sternberg for producing the intro and outro music for the show, and thank you all for listening. So, until next time, thanks.